0: I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. On March 23rd, 1849, a three feet long by two feet wide by two feet eight inches deep wooden box was shipped from Richmond, Virginia, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Many other pieces of cargo made the exact same journey that day, but what set this particular crate apart was its contents. Rather than the usual dry goods, this box held a human being. Henry, a.k.a. Box Brown, was a slave who had worked for many years in a Virginia tobacco factory. His wife and children lived on a nearby plantation. One day, though, Henry got word that his family had been sold to a slave owner in North Carolina. Henry made it out of the factory and out into the streets just in time to bid an agonizing farewell to his loved ones as they began their dreadful journey south. Henry was inconsolable for months before finally he resolved to escape slavery and to try to reunite with his family so it was that he found himself climbing into that wooden crate early that march day and being loaded onto a railway car by white sympathizers brown traveled with only a canteen of water and a couple of biscuits for sustenance His box had an air hole and was marked in large lettering with the words, this side up. Naturally, though, the box got upended many times during the arduous 27-hour journey made via rail, steamboat, ferry, and wagon. Brown later said that at one point, quote, I felt my eyes swelling as if they would burst from their sockets, and the veins on my temples were dreadfully distended with pressure of blood upon my head." Though he eventually arrived in Philadelphia, safely greeting his rescuers with an unceremonious How do you do, gentlemen? Though he eventually arrived safely in Philadelphia, Brown confessed that there had been numerous times during his journey when he was sure he would die. Human beings will go to great lengths to be set free. Human beings will go to great lengths to be set free. History is chock full of examples of both groups and individuals who have sacrificed much for their liberty and for that of others. We honored many of these brave souls here in the United States just this past week on Veterans Day. The Bible, the Bible, that great sacred document of our faith, is a huge collection of stories of countless others who have yearned for freedom. The most obvious of these, of course, is the story of the ancient Hebrews being brought out of captivity in Egypt into the Promised Land. If you look closely, though, you'll see that the writings of the New Testament are all really stories about people seeking freedom, too. Freedom from sin, sickness, isolation, Condemnation, poverty, misunderstanding, despair. Stories like that of the hemorrhaging woman who pushes her way through a crowd just so she can touch Jesus's hymn. Stories like that of the disgraced son who dares to slink his way home so that he can eat something other than pig slop. Stories like that of the Roman centurion who, despite his status as an outcast in the eyes of faithful Jews, nonetheless risk asking Jesus to come to his home to save his dying servant. Stories like that of the Ethiopian eunuch begging Philip to explain Holy Scripture to him. Stories like those of the innumerable individuals possessed by demons who come to Jesus for relief. There are endless New Testament stories about people seeking liberation from whatever it is that binds them. And then there is this morning's gospel lesson. On the surface, the parable of the talents doesn't really seem like a story about freedom. It looks more like a story about using our resources wisely, about being good stewards of the gifts God has entrusted to us. A master leaves three slaves in charge of his finances when he heads off on a trip, Jesus tells us. The first two slaves take the substantial sums that have been given them and they double their money. The third one, though, hides the relatively modest amount he has received. When the master returns, he is furious with this third slave and declares that he should be thrown into the outer darkness. In the traditional reading of this parable, in the traditional reading of this parable, God is the master urging us not to hoard our resources, not to hide them away, but rather to multiply them for the building up of God's kingdom. Obviously, this is an incredible, incredibly useful interpretation of this story for, say, stewardship campaigns or UTO Sunday, or for when it comes time to recruit Sunday school volunteers, uh, ushers or members of the altar guild. Faithful followers of Jesus, this interpretation of the parable implies, faithful followers of Jesus don't squander the treasures with which we've been entrusted. When God gives us a gift, we seek to yield a good return on God's investment. Now, there's nothing disastrously wrong with this reading of the Parable of the Talents. It's a compelling one in many ways, quite useful, as I said, in helping to balance a church budget or marshal volunteers. It does present a few challenges, however. For starters, it portrays God as a sort of tyrant, and us, God's children, as people who serve God, not out of love, but out of fear and duress. It's hard to imagine the first two slaves actually wanting to work so hard for someone who, the story makes clear, is a pretty ruthless individual. Then there's the issue, of course, of the third slave, the guy who gets a bum deal right from the start with only one measly talent, then is condemned because he's afraid to let go of what little he has. Well, who, who wants a God who operates like this? Not I. Not any of us, I imagine. Which brings us to another possible reading of this morning's gospel. What if God isn't the master in this story? What if God isn't the master? What if the master is simply that? A master, a slaveholder, someone who dominates and oppresses others in order to maintain his own position in life. What if Jesus tells his followers this parable not to issue a warning, a warning about what may happen to people who squander their resources, a warning to slaves who fail to obey their masters? What if Jesus tells his followers this parable not to issue a warning, but rather to issue an invitation? An invitation to come and live in a world gloriously free of slaves and masters. A world in which one's resources, one's possessions, one's achievements, one's status are not the end-all, be-all of human existence. What if Jesus tells this story to remind us of the liberty he has given us? the liberty he has given us to choose another option. The option not to buy into the tired old narrative that says that the goal of life is to double, triple, or quadruple our resources, to make ourselves or those whom we serve even richer, stronger, more popular, more powerful, more admired, more secure. What if Jesus tells us this story to remind us that we have an option instead to live according to Jesus' strange economy in which the poor, the meek, the peaceful, and the persecuted are the ones who are blessed. That kingdom in which, oddly enough, losers are winners and the weak are strong. What if Jesus tells us this story to remind us that we have the option to be like the third slave who in essence says to the master, You know what? The jig's up. The jig's up. I'm not going to play this game anymore. I'm not going to spend my entire existence propping up a system that holds me down. I'm not going to work anymore for the benefit of my oppressor. Instead, I'm going to opt out. I may fail in the attempt. I may die, but I'm not going to stay a slave to that which threatens to crush me. I'm not going to stay a slave to that in life which threatens to crush me. Instead, instead I'm going to do the one crazy, risky thing that might set me free. I'm going to to risk doing the one outrageous thing that might set me free, crazy and dangerous though it may be. Like Henry Box Brown, I'm going to risk my old life so that maybe, just maybe, I might get a new life. I wonder what new life God might be calling you and me to this day. I wonder what new life God might be calling us to this day, and what enslavements are keeping us from answering that call. What tired old ways of being and doing are we ready to opt out of in order to lay hold of what Jesus calls the life more abundant and what the Apostle Paul terms the life that is really life. Maybe it's a debilitating fear, fear about our health, about our children, about our country, about our world. Perhaps it's suspicion of others, those people of a different race or ethnic origin, those people who hold different political or religious beliefs than we do. Maybe it's an obsession with a bottom line that, while it lines our pockets quite nicely, is costing us enormously in our relationships, our personal well-being, and our sense of integrity and purpose. Maybe it's a long-standing grudge we've been holding against a family member, a neighbor, or a coworker. Maybe it's an addiction or anxiety, a sense of our own fundamental inadequacy, or crippling guilt over something we have done wrong. Whatever it is, whatever it is that is holding us captive this day, whatever it may be, Jesus, the great liberator, offers us a way out even from the most impossible situations. Jesus offers us release. He longs for us to be free. Breaking free, as Henry Brown discovered on his long and arduous journey way back in 1849, will not be easy. It will not be without pain and risk. In return for refusing to cooperate with the forces that bind him, the third slave in this morning's Gospel reading pays a very dear price. This is also what happens to Jesus, as you will recall. Because he does not play the game as established by the powers that be, because he does not allow himself to be enslaved to the forces of domination and oppression, they kill him. There are fates worse than death, however. There is also more than one way to live. Some time ago, I read about a rabbi, Michael Weiser, who had received a bunch of threatening phone calls from a man named Larry Trapp. Trapp was the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in Lincoln, Nebraska. He didn't like Jews. Rabbi Weiser got hold of this man's phone number and in response to the racial epithets being hurled at him, started leaving voicemail messages for Mr. Trapp, messages that had a bit of a bite to them. Things like, Larry, there's a lot of love out there. You're not getting any of it. Don't you want some? Then he'd hang up. Well, one day, though, one day, just as Rabbi Weiser was preparing to leave another of his rather snarky voicemails, Mr. Trapp actually answered the phone. Encouraged by his wife to break free from the cycle of bitterness both men were caught in, Rabbi Weiser found himself telling Trapp, Hey, I heard you're sick and in a wheelchair. I thought you might need a ride to the grocery. How about it?" To Rabbi Weiser's surprise, Larry Trapp took him up on his offer. Thus began a relationship that, over the course of several years, transformed from outright hatred to friendship and mutual respect. During this time, Larry Trapp's health declined dramatically, and Weiser and his family ended up inviting him to take residence in his home where they could care for him. Trap eventually died there, but not before, not before both he and Weiser knew the freedom of living differently, of living outside the box with options, just like Henry Box Brown did almost 200 years before. May you and I know this freedom too, amen.